Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. And that greeting is kind of uh, double-sided today because it's not only a warm welcome because I, I want to be warm to you, my listener. It's also really hot out today, and it's really hot. So there's another kind of dose of warm. So it's in the 90s here in Minneapolis slash St. Paul, and it's uh, we're feeling it today. But hey, welcome summer. We complain about winter, so let's at least enjoy the heat and the humidity and say, hey, summer's here. So I want to start the show with... Douglas Blair. He's a news producer and podcast host at The Daily Signal. He's also the co-host of The Daily Signal podcast. I saw him on television before I heard him on radio. That's how important he is. Doug, nice to have you back with us. Yeah, it's great to be here, Bill. And actually, before we start, I want to talk to you very quickly about a time I spent in Bemidji, Minnesota. Okay, let's hear about Uh, it. During the summer, I was there and it was like 110 degrees. (laughs) It It was boiling hot. There was mosquitoes everywhere. And yet every single person from Minnesota I ever talked to was like, yeah, no, you deal with this, but Minnesota is still the best state ever. And I was like, wow, okay, that's impressive. Yeah, it's the mosquitoes you're probably not used to, are you? Uh, we get mosquitoes out here in D.C., but back home in Portland, we, we don't really have that many bugs. Yeah. It's pretty and, temperate. And weather in D.C. is like a comfortable 82 today, isn't it? Uh, yes, but yesterday it was, we were out in front of the court yesterday to cover some of the protests. Uh, that were happening over abortion, and it was probably in the high 90s. It sure, sure as hell felt like it was in the in the high hundreds. Yeah, well, that's probably a good place to start. Is what's going on uh, in that uh, department with the protests at the at the Capitol? Absolutely. So what we saw yesterday was a protest called the Blockade the Court protest. This was put on by pro-abortion activists. Uh, I think they assumed that maybe we would see a decision in the Dobbs case, which will likely overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, But they basically said that we're going to blockade the court. We're going to make them feel like they're trapped between uh, the people and, you know, they're trapped in the court until they do what we want. So this is another one of those extensions of what these protesters think is the best strategy to keep abortion uh, legal at the federal level through Roe. They think that through intimidation and through uh, sort of angrily protesting and yelling and shouting that they can get what they want. They've done this in front of the justices' homes. Obviously, that extended into uh, an assassination attempt on Justice Brett Kavanaugh. But they've seen this strategy uh, work in the sense that the administration and local law enforcement do not push back on it. So they're going to keep doing it until they get what they want. Mm-hmm. Doug, when I look at some of these protesters outside of the judges' homes, are any of these people uh, being paid to be there? That is something that we are, are, are looking into at the Daily Signal. So basically, we see the same people over and over and over again. And we kind of wonder how they're able to do this so mm-hmm. consistently and not have a job. It seems like after a couple of weeks that you'd start to run out of money or you would need to get some sort of funding to you know, continue living, you know, paying your rent, being able to buy food. But they're, they're there every day. They're there every week. I, I see the same people over and over and over again. So we're concerned that there is an outside group that is paying them. It's possible it's a Soros group, but we're not quite sure yet. But we are doing some investigative work. Yeah. It is interesting the reach that George Soros seems to have. I don't quite understand it. It was like a 90-year-old uh, 
European atheist, and he just, what does he want to do? What's, what's his end game? So George Soros, he's sort of treated as like the big bad boogeyman on the conservative right, which is actually honest. The left will always accuse us of sort of over uh, emphasizing George Soros's role in getting a lot of this type of progressive leftist legislation passed. But it is really scary how much money he has poured into uh, these types of causes. He's poured over five hundred billion with a B. No, 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 no. Uh, dollars. Five hundred billion. Yes, billions of dollars into these types of causes. Wow. Uh, it's, it's insane the amount of money that he will do. So millions and millions and millions and billions of dollars are going into these types of organizations that are explicitly pushing leftist ideology. So basically what he wants is this new sort of society that's based off of leftist values. He's willing to do whatever it will take to take out sort of conservative ideas. Uh, and we see the result of his policies and actions. So if you look at like Chesa Boudin, who was the recently re- uh, removed DA in San Francisco, he's one of these prosecutors that George Soros was funding. And if you look at San Francisco now, you can see the direct impact that that type of ideology has had on the city. Mm -hmm. Doug Blair is my guest. He is a writer uh, at the Daily Signal. You can go to dailysignal.com. He knows uh, Rob Bluey, and Rob Bluey knows Doug. So this is really nice to have (laughs) them both on the program. I feel like I get the best of everything, which is really great. So uh, when we have a shooting of any kind, uh, do, do, do the media and the politicians, do they have kind of your standard knee-jerk reaction to this? And is this good or bad? So it depends on the shooting. So if it's a shooting that they can politicize, they will respond and say that this is something that could be prevented. Uh, we just need to put in these particular gun control measures, right? And then everything would be solved. Uh, if it's a shooting, however, each week in Chicago, they, sense, they tend to ignore that because that's a, a demonstration of the failure of leftist and Democrat leadership. So let's take the Uvalde shootings, for example. This was a terrible, terrible thing. I think it's horrible. I think it's awful. We've talked about this bill on a number of different occasions about how this is a symptom of societal rot and moral rot Mm -hmm. uh, in our country. But they'll always say that this could have been fixed with these simple, and they always say, common sense gun control reforms. Now, when you look at the actual proposals that they put forward, they're anything but common sense. One of the proposals that's been put forward a couple of different times now is raising the age to purchase a semi-automatic weapon from 18 to 21. This would basically guarantee that people who are young adults, 18 is still considered an adult, they would have a second-class status as an American citizen. They would be denied a constitutional right based on fear-mongering from the left. So that's not common sense. That's basically ignoring the constitutional reality and the constitutional right of a young adult simply based on their age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when the Uvalde shooter kills people, it's the gun's fault. And when mm-hmm. Kyle Rick Rittenhouse shot somebody, it was the shooter's fault. Absolutely, right? This is a, again, this is how the left will do this. They'll basically politicize the shooting in a way that they find most advantageous. So Kyle Rittenhouse defends himself. He does exactly what he's supposed to do with his guns in the sense that he doesn't, you know, go out there guns blazing. He, he gives warnings. He says, I'm, you know, I'm in danger now. I have to, to fight back. Uh, but that, again, that was his fault. They, they claimed that he crossed state lines, which was a lie. They claimed that he wasn't able to have the gun, which was in dispute. So all of these things that they try to claim about a, a 
a gun owner was basically something that they say, oh, it could have been prevented if these had these laws in place. When it's a clearly illegal person who has the gun, who shouldn't have had the gun in the first place, as in Uvalde, they say this was a failure of gun control policy. It was the gun's fault. It's all of the guns, 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 guns. Mm-hmm. We need to take them away. That's the issue here is that we're fighting against an enemy that will decide whether or not, based on the situation of the shooting, if it's politically advantageous to go after it as a gun perspective or it's politically advantageous to destroy the person who wielded the gun as an enemy. Doug, are we ever going to limit video games that are completely directed to gun violence? I mean, these games are so realistic. At a certain point, if you want to act out uh, with a gun, this would be kind of something that you've already been practicing for a long, long time. Bill, I'm going to say something mildly controversial here. (laughs) Go ahead. When people say video games and violent TV are to blame for this type of uh, act, I, I think that's sort of passing the buck off on to a media, which is not necessarily what we should be doing. I think that violent video games are definitely not something that are appropriate for young children. Mm-hmm. However, I think that those are things that are being consumed by adults. If an adult who is consuming age-appropriate content wants to enjoy that type of media, I think that that's fine. I think if, if you're a, like a five-year-old child and you're exposing them to something like a Kill Bill or uh, a, a Rambo, then of course that's kind of a problem from that perspective. But it's not the violent media that's the problem. It's the abdication of the responsibility to responsibly parent that is the issue here. Mm-hmm. Obviously, parents need to be responsible for what their children are consuming, and they should not be consuming that type of material. But that doesn't mean that we need to go to the extent of, well, let's ban this material because we don't like it or we believe it's connected to these things. You say, this is not appropriate for my child. I will not be allowing them to consume it, and that'll sort of you know, make it easier. If you're an adult that wants to do it, knock yourself out. Oh, Doug, you know, I completely agree with everything you just said. Uh, I think if adults want to play the video games, fantastic. But I think uh, the parents should be stepping in and having control over what their kids have access to. I think you're spot on with that as well. But I do think that there are some kids that are getting access to these video games at a young age. And to their uh, detriment or to the detriment of society, they are acting out on, I mean, this is part of the, the, the package of what creates the violence in their heads. Absolutely. And again, we've discussed this many times that it's societal and moral degradation that is what is causing this issue. And that is part of it, right? Like parents used to be able to go and see what their children were doing. They would say, you know, Johnny, we're going to watch this movie. And I understand that this movie is appropriate for your age. Now we start to see that parents don't even know what their kids are watching online. You have TikToks that are endorsing this type of weird gender ideology. You have violent movies that they don't even know are violent. PG movies now have all these things in them that are completely inappropriate for children. So it's it's more difficult for parents to do it. But again, like I'm saying, I don't think it's the fault of the media that, you know, some people are going to consume. Like a, a Rambo is a good movie. A Kill Bill is a good movie. It's the fact that the parents are showing it to an audience that is not, uh, you know, appropriate for it that becomes the issue. Yeah, I agree with you, Doug, completely. I remember when I was uh, seeing uh, the first Rambo movie as an adult, and I walked out of there going, okay, that was one of the better movies I've ever seen. Yeah. It's a great movie. (laughs) It's a great movie. All right, let me take a break. If you have a question for Doug Blair from The Daily Signal, let me know what it is. You can text it over, 877-933-2484. He's one of my Washington, D.C. correspondents. So anything that you might be wondering, what's going on in the nation's capital, I bet Doug would have an answer for it. Again, 877-933-2484. Doug Blair is my guest. We'll be right back.
So glad to have you join me today. My guest is Douglas Blair from The Daily Signal. You can go check out dailysignal.com to learn more about Doug and his great writing. It's all there at dailysignal.com. All right, uh, Doug, I don't think we can escape a conversation without mentioning more and more about the inflation and gas prices just because it changes uh, all the time. And I'd love to hear what the most current uh, news is on it. I mean, it was a bit of a sad story. Recently, we hit a a rather ominous uh, benchmark. Gas is now, as an average, higher than $5 across the country, which uh, I'm sure your listeners are no different. They've probably been experiencing this uh, as they've been driving around and attempting to, you know, get to and from their jobs. But yeah, gas prices are super, super high. Prices for, for food are still quite high as well. And then while not necessarily connected to inflation, it's still very difficult to find baby formula. So unfortunately, a lot of the issues that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks and the last months have really only gotten worse. And and we're really not seeing any action from the administration on fixing this. What we see is deflection after deflection, right? The Biden administration is not responsible for these things. It's, it's Vladimir Putin in Ukraine or uh, you know, there's supply chain issues from the virus or, you know, it's those greedy oil companies that keep doing this. It's never the fault of the administration. Uh, it's always somebody else's fault. They can never do any wrong. They can always be wronged, however. I know that's the position that most administrations take, whether it's Democratic or Republican, but it does seem like it would be wise to admit that there's some issues uh, that they are responsible for. I, I don't think the the American people are going, oh, yeah, you're right. It's all Putin's fault. I don't think people are thinking that. They're not. And what they are thinking, though, is and, and, and you're right, I think, that the American people are extremely forgiving if they're being told the truth. What I think a lot of Americans do recognize, however, is that the Biden administration is lying to them. They noticed that gas prices were severely on the rise, severely inflated months before Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. Obviously, there's some connection there, but like the idea that it's entirely Vladimir Putin's fault is just ridiculous. So when the American people are fed a lie, they can see through it and it makes them less likely to trust uh, the administration to do the right thing. So I'll give you an example of when the administration has been given a lot of leeway uh, based on things that aren't their fault. So when he first came into office, people were very happy. They thought that he was going to be more unifying. They thought that there was going to be a change in leadership. They thought that there was going to be uh, a different form of how their needs were being taken care of. And so they gave him the benefit of the doubt throughout the first couple of months where he was unable to, to fulfill a lot of the promises he made. But then as time went on, it became more obvious that this was just incompetence and not necessarily things out of his control. The American people very quickly soured, and it became worse when he decided to lie and say, oh, this isn't my fault, it's supply chains. This isn't my fault, it's greedy oil barons. This isn't my fault, it's Putin. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that that's, makes it challenging for people to swallow all that and say, okay, I guess that's right. Because uh, I think we all see what's happening in terms of uh, inflation across the board. I know the world is suffering with inflationary issues, but it's uh, we don't live in, in the world. We live in the U.S., and we expect, I think, certain adma- answers from any administration. So, Right, right. And that's the thing, too, that's so sad is that a lot of Americans are having to make these really difficult choices about what to spend their money on. Obviously, you need gas if you drive into work or you use your vehicle as 
uh, a tool to do your job. So people in construction are feeling this very acutely. But then when you go to the store, too, you have to make choices about what you're able to buy for your families or even if you can buy something for your families. Like I said, baby formula is still very difficult to find. And when you look at the expectation of what a government at the very basic level should be able to do for its citizenry, it's ensure that these things don't really happen. If the, if the, you know, the federal government is going to be control of the money, it's going to be control of the currency, it needs to be able to say, well, the currency is going to be worth something. It's going to val- have value. Uh, it's not just going to depreciate in value over and over and over again, which is what inflation is. It's basically a tax uh, on your wages because you, your, your money is now worthless. Mm-hmm. Doug, a listener wants to know, does Doug think that the administration could bring down fuel prices? I think the administration could bring down fuel prices, but not maybe necessarily in the way that they they want. Uh, I think one of the things that they could be doing is that they could open up a lot of our energy reserves and they could sort of say, look, we have an idea about what we want energy to look like in the future. We want it to be more green. Obviously, Pete Buttigieg has said over and over and over again, the reason why gas is so affecting people is because they don't have electric vehicles, right? If somebody, everybody had a Tesla, then nobody would care about gas prices because they would just be using electricity. But for the meantime, if we want to have this goal of a renewable, 100% renewable energy source, you still need to make sure that people are able to get the energy they need now. So the Biden administration needs to cut this non sense with we're going to go 100 percent renewable and we're going to start ignoring gas uh, and, and oil. And they need to start opening up those reserves because then we can start to say, all right, we have this stuff to go back to. We have this resource to rely on that we can actually use as opposed to using pie in the sky, dreaming of a renewable energy source that just doesn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. Doug Blair is my guest. He's a, a writer from The Daily Signal, also hosts the podcast there. Doug, uh, what is going on in the tech world? Do you think this uh, purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk is going to happen? What have you heard? So I do believe that the purchase is going to happen. But the more I see about what is going on in Twitter, the more I recognize just how awful this website is. And I feel terrible. I'm a journalist. I have to exist <laughs> on this space. It's just it's, it's my, my biggest advice is that I, I spend a little too much time on Twitter. But as we've been demonstrating or as we've seen demonstrated multiple, multiple times, is that Twitter really does exist as this kind of cesspool of leftist ideology. I'll give the example of what I mean by that. Libs of TikTok, which is a very popular Twitter account that exposes uh, what the radical left will do. It posts videos that are posted to popular social media site TikTok, uh, mostly of liberals trying to say, I'm teaching your children gender ideology or, you know, people in positions of power who say I fire conservatives. It basically exposes them for what they do. They were there was an internal discussion at Twitter about how they would best be able to ban the account without it drawing the ire of conservatives, because they even acknowledge that a lot of people have a perception of Twitter as being biased against conservatives. So when they looked at that and they said, well, we have to avoid that perception, it just kind of shows you that they know what they're doing is wrong. They know that it's being perceived badly, and yet they continue to do it anyway. They just can't help it. Well, so let's chat a little bit about, because we have about five more minutes, I would love for you to talk about uh, the education, uh, where we are with that and homeschooling, what it's going to look like uh, come fall? 
Absolutely. So one of the things that has been a really positive result of the pandemic, and I know that's far and few between positive things that came out of COVID, but there was this renewed interest in bringing education back into the home, bringing education back into the purview of the parents. Because what a lot of parents saw during the pandemic was radical leftist ideologue teaching their children about topics that are completely inappropriate. Uh, We would hear story after story of parents hearing about how their white children were being told that they were bad people simply because of the color of their skin. Uh, Gender ideology, they were being told that their, their kid really wasn't a boy, he was actually a girl because this teacher was just pushing that messaging over and over and over again. So parents who recognized that this stuff wasn't appropriate for their children, they didn't want their kids learning that, began to take it into their own hands. And homeschooling or what we called pandemic pods started to form where parents would group up together, they would start to push uh, their children into these groups that were more localized and more homeschooly uh, kind of feeling, and they would have a, a teacher that they trusted and knew come in and teach their kids. Uh, this was something that the public schools really didn't like because they started to see dropping enrollment. They started to see less education money going their way, especially as many states started to pass bills that the, they would fund students. Uh, instead of public schools. Currently, the model is that the school gets money for each student that goes there as opposed to the student getting the money themselves to use how they want. But more and more states are passing legislation that will give that money directly to the kid and the families of the kids instead of giving it to some public school that's going to fail. So one of the things that we actually talked about, we had uh, Kurt Cameron, the actor from Growing Pains, who is a very strong proponent of homeschooling. We had him on the show to talk about his new movie about homeschooling. It's a really interesting interview. I highly recommend your listeners check it out on the Daily Signal podcast. But we're basically seeing that there is a resurgence in parents taking control of their children's education, which I think is just wonderful. Oh, I do too. And when I see the the gender ideology coming into the schools as early as first and second grade, I I get very nervous, um, as most parents would. And I saw a, 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 a tweet that Elon Musk had, which I found interesting. Doug, I'd love your take on this. He said, we are simultaneously being told that gender differences do not exist and that genders are so profoundly different that irreversible surgery is the only option. <laughs> I mean, he's 100% correct. The ideology of the left on gender is one of the craziest things. And to to sort of loop back to a topic we were talking about before, it always makes me laugh when I go to the court and I hear all these pro-abortion protesters saying, no uterus, no opinion. And then they'll welcome, you know, a man who says he's a woman into the conversation and say, well, he's got, you know, he's got the right idea. So we'll let him talk. (laughs) It's very strange to me that they can't seem to keep that consistent. But you're right that Elon Musk has made the point that, you know, gender ideologues believe that there is such a a vast nexus of gender that, you know, you can't describe it in one word. But if you're a transgender man, the only way or sorry, a transgender woman, a man who believes he's a woman, the only way to really become a woman is to do horrible things to your reproductive parts and basically mutilate yourself to become, quote unquote, a woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my favorite ever was a T-shirt I saw that said, there are not just two genders. And it's a T-shirt you could order, and you do the little drop-down box, and it said male or female. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, stop taking calls. Uh, We've got a winner. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, again, like this is the thing that always kind of fascinates me as well. I think at a very base level, at the very minimum, they sort of kind of recognize that their ideology doesn't make any sense, yeah. but they've gone so far down the rabbit hole. I know, I know. They, they can't even do it. I know. Doug, thanks for being on the show. Really love having you on. 
Absolutely. Thanks, Bill. You bet. Doug Blair has been my guest. He's a writer at The Daily Signal. Go to dailysignal.com. You can also hear the podcast there. Take, take a break. But when we come back, The Five Masculine Instincts, we're going to talk about that book. I think it'd be good to talk about some masculine instincts. I think if Abraham, for, for example, he lost his patience and splintered the family tree into generations of hostility. There's Moses was constantly afraid and frustrated. David was prone to cover-ups. I mean, the Bible, as it turns out, of course, talks about humans, not heroes. And we can be complicated. We can be compromised as humans. So our goal is not just to be men, but to be men becoming more like Christ. Those are the words of Chase uh, Replogle. And (laughs) he's written a book called The Five Masculine Instincts. And I'm glad to have him on the show. Chase, welcome. Yeah, thank you very much. You, yeah, know, I, you nailed it. That was perfect, perfect pronunciation. Rep so. Logal. I had to pause for it. a second, <laughs> so I was freaking out a little bit. I'm thinking, say it, Bill, say it. Rep Logal. Chase will be just fine. Yeah, well, Chase is hard to say, but Rep Logal, that's a challenge. <laughs> All right. So congratulations on your new book, This uh, Five Masculine Instincts and A Guide to Becoming a Better Man. Tell me, yeah, uh, yeah tell me, Chase, a little bit about it and how you think your book is going to be different, uh, be different from other other men's books? Sure. Well, first and foremost, I'm a pastor. Uh, I pastor a congregation that has plenty of men in it. I'm a man myself. I'm raising a son. I grew up with a brother and a father in the home. And I've watched over the last uh, few years as, well, maybe the right way to say it is, I know even putting the word masculinity in the title of the book makes it controversial to some, regardless of what's even inside the book. And I've witnessed that firsthand as a pastor, that it's, it's never been harder to talk about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a Christian man, And I've also watched as a lot of men have begun, because of some of that controversy in culture, to just disengage from the question altogether. It's never been easier for men to just become apathetic, to disengage from those responsibilities. And so what I wanted this book to do is I wanted it to be able to help men find a way forward that wasn't just digging the existing trenches deeper or just contributing to the controversy. But it was really a path for men to just focus again on Christ to better understand themselves and how we grow in character to become more like Christ. So I hope the book gives men and anyone who would read it uh, the tools to go about that work. Yeah, well, very uh, provocative title, The Five Masculine Instincts. Are you willing to spill some of those beans, some of the five masculine instincts? Yeah, I'd love to. I think it's always important when we talk about instincts to define what I mean by instinct as well. Uh, I use in the book C.S. Lewis's definition of an instinct as behavior as if from knowledge. So in other words, your instincts are the way you act and behave, and usually they're instincts because they seem to you obvious and like common sense, but the reality is you've never really stopped to think about why you behave or act that way. So these five instincts I cover in the book are like that. They're ways that men act and behave in the world, but maybe haven't really considered. And that's important to get right because these are not the five expectations of men, that you have to have these five to qualify as a man. That's certainly not what I'm saying. Nor are they the five sins of men. These are the things you have to watch out for. Um, I actually came across the five in one of Shakespeare's famous monologues. He has the opening lines of it are familiar. uh, All the world's a stage, and each of us as men and women have our entrances and our exits. 
And Shakespeare goes on to describe these stages in the man's life. So what I tried to do is put a single word to those and then a biblical character to help recognize them. So the five instincts that I cover in the book are sarcasm, adventure, ambition, reputation, and apathy. Oh, I love that. So maybe we could just take one of them and expand on it a little bit. And I think if you tell me the first two again, I know sarcasm was one. What was the second one? Adventure. Sarcasm. Adventure. adventure. Yep. I would be very interested to hear about sarcasm. Yeah, that's, I, a lot of people like starting there as well, too. And it's a good place because it's the first instinct. Uh, Shakespeare describes this, this beginning stage in a man's life as the reluctant schoolboy who's dragging himself to school. I think it's often associated with this early stage in life, but it doesn't have to be. There's a kind of sarcasm that can creep in all over the place throughout our life. I use the story of Cain to talk and look specifically at this instinct. And Cain's story is so fascinating. He is the first child, the first born of creation, Adam and Eve being created, but he being born to Adam and Eve. Uh, and, of course, the big question that every commentator or pastor who's preached on the, this passage has to deal with is, why does God reject Cain's sacrifice and not Abel's? What struck me about that is God actually comes down and initiates a conversation with Cain and gives him an opportunity to ask that very question that we really don't get an answer to in Scripture. Uh, He recognizes that Cain is frustrated, and God comes down and says, why is your face downcast? Don't you realize that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to rule over you if you don't rule over it? Well, how does Cain respond? He ignores this divine lesson, rises up and murders his brother. When God comes to him a second time and says, where is your brother Abel? He says, am I my brother's keeper? You hear this moment of sarcasm. Uh, There's a kind of sarcasm that's just a funny or clever joke. But there's also a kind of sarcasm that can become a veneer or cover for contempt, that we hide our disdain for authority. And I think what you see in Cain's moment of sarcasm is his rejection of God as an authority or as someone who would give him a lesson. I think a lot of men struggle with, if somebody points out something wrong in my life, if someone challenges something in my life, I feel like it's a threat. I feel defensive automatically. And there is a kind of man who's prone to make everything a joke, to laugh everything off, refusing to take anything seriously for what they might find there. And of course, the curse of it is Cain ends up in the land of Nod, which is Hebrew, the land of wandering. That if we get stuck in this instinct for sarcasm, this contempt for the divine lesson that God is offering us, the tendency is to be perpetually stuck in immaturity, to not be able to grow beyond ourselves and mature into the better things God is trying to lead us into. Mm -hmm. My guest is Pastor Chase Replogle. He's the pastor of Bent Oak Church in Springfield, Missouri. He's written a book called The Five Masculine Instincts, A Guide to Becoming a Better Man. And here are the instincts, sarcasm, adventure, ambition, reputation, and apathy, is there a way, uh, Chase, to do or could, or to conduct a, a personal assessment? Yeah, one of the tools I created alongside the book is an online assessment that you can take. It's just 25 questions, nothing scientific. But what it will do is it'll uh, take you through a series of questions and then give you results showing which of these instincts might be strongest in your life. These are not personality types. I think they change with age and situation. But that assessment is a really powerful tool for you to start asking questions. The philosopher Nietzsche said that when you, uh, when you ask your instincts to rationalize themselves, you weaken their control over you. And that's really what the book in this assessment is trying to do. Just ask some hard questions about why do I do the things I do? What might actually be motivating me beneath the surface? And so by it, you gain a kind of perspective. So if anybody's interested in that assessment, uh, you can go to the5masculineinstincts.com. That's with the number five, or you could Google search it. 
TheFiveMasculineInstincts.com. And uh, you'll find it right there on the homepage of the site. I'm going to take that quiz. That's for sure. So, uh, Chase, when do these instincts uh, become harmful to men? I think the key is perspective. So all of the instincts, I think, can actually have a positive or at least a neutral side. Like you think of the instincts we named previously, like ambition or reputation. I mean, certainly God often gives us ambition, and the New Testament recommends paying attention to your reputation, particularly with outsiders. So these are not sins that men fall into, but when they become blind spots, when they become things we indulge without considering them, then they have a tendency to lead us into an overdependence on them or a blindness. And that's where we end up finding ourselves in destruction. Oftentimes, the things that lead to destruction in our life are good things that become uh, disproportionate in our life, that become too important to us and blind us from what God is doing. So throughout the book, what I'm really trying to help men do is recognize how that instinct might be at work within them and how what they have in Christ helps them balance that out. One of the best places to see that at work is the Apostle Paul uh, in writing to Timothy, who's pastoring in a really difficult place in Ephesus, all sorts of conflict. He's a young leader. Paul tells Timothy that he'll show progress in the congregation by learning to keep a close watch on his life and on his teaching. <clears throat> I think that little model is really important for the book. How as men do we learn to pay closer attention to what's going on inside of us? And how do we learn to check those instincts with what we have in Christ? That's the way forward to true character and Christ-likeness for men. Mm-hmm. Chase, how does humility and meekness free us from the immaturity of our reactions? And, and how does that demonstrate strength? So for each of these instincts, I pair them with an intentional practice. As we were discussing sarcasm and Cain, the right. intentional practices that I pair with that instinct is this idea of humility and meekness. I define humility as self-suspicion. We live in a world where the culture promotes self-esteem and self-affirmation, self-actualization. But I think Christians learn to practice a form of self-suspicion. We recognize by God's grace that we're not always right, that our first instinct isn't always the right instinct, that our first reaction isn't always the right reaction. And this is the thing that Cain struggled so much with. He couldn't recognize in God's rejection of his sacrifice an actual kind of grace and opportunity to learn and grow beyond himself. And that's really what humility is, that opening of the door to perhaps there's something God is teaching me here. Meekness, I think, is a kind of acting out of that humility. Meekness, we imagine sometimes as kind of just being weak or, or unengaged. But really, meekness in the biblical sense is a kind of internal strength that doesn't need to react, that I could be criticized, I could be attacked, perhaps even wrongly. But I have a kind of internal strength that doesn't need to respond Mm, but instead could like entertain that. the idea that God is doing something within me. Sometimes the illustration I'll use is when we watch two boxers fighting, we don't just measure a boxer's strength by how hard he is. We also will comment on how strong a boxer is by his ability to absorb the blow also. And I want to suggest to men, like Cain, if you find yourself constantly reactive, that's not actually strength, but a kind of weakness. The truly strong man is the man who cultivates the kind of meekness to restrain himself and consider what God might be doing for something better in the moment. My guest is uh, Pastor Chase Replogle. I'm saying that name just because I love uh, getting the practice of saying <laughs> it correctly, it. Chase Replogle. Um, let's talk a little bit about ambition. Moses had ambition, and it led him to sort of confuse his place for God. Yeah, Moses is a striking figure because on one hand, he rises up and strikes down this Egyptian who's beating the two Hebrew slaves. The book of Acts tells us he does it believing that they'll rally behind him. 
but they don't. Forty years later, when he's in the wilderness at the burning bush, God calls him back to deliver those people. And you would imagine Moses would be thrilled by the opportunity, but instead he's reluctant. I'm slow of speech. How will they know you sent me? Can you just get someone else to do it? (laughs) And you wonder how these two Moses can be the same character, so decisive and action-oriented one moment and so reluctant and disillusioned the next. But my experience is that's often what ambition feels like in our life. There's nothing like ambition that one moment makes us feel like we're capable of almost anything. And then sometimes only hours later, by our own failure, feel disillusioned and like we're not capable of anything. And so Moses struggles across his life by this ambition that constantly wants to measure his success against the fulfillment of it and the reality of the experience that he lives in, which often he finds himself falling short of. Mm-hmm. Chase, I think you made a discovery in your, in you share this in your book that you were allergic to meat. And I find that kind of interesting because I think, I'm guessing men uh, by, by and large are more meat eaters than women. Yeah. So I, I, I could be a, wrong about that, but I don't know. Rosie, do you you're, eat meat? You're correct. There are stats on this. So I, I am right. a, a meat eater for sure. But uh, yeah, 57% uh, <laughs> men eat more than women when okay. it comes to meat. Um, so tell me about your uh, discovery of your allergic reaction to meat. What, how, what was kind of impact was that on your life? Sure. So there's a tick-borne disease throughout the South that I contracted five years ago known as alpha-gal. And I'm a bacon cheeseburger, deer hunting kind of guy. And all of a sudden, I found myself having true anaphylaxia, throat swelling and hives, to all things mammal is based on this tick bite. So I've carved out beef and pork and dairy and uh, obviously all the venison that I was eating. So I actually write in the book about it, and I I, uh, raise the question in the book, because men eat so much more meat than women, there's actually a whole area of academic focus in trying to answer the question, why? And there's all sorts of wild theories that, you know, meat consumption is biological or that it's culturally created through marketing campaigns or that men should adopt a carnivore meat-only diet or that it's risking global warming. And I raise the question at the beginning of the book, if we can't agree on what men should eat, (laughs) brown bag you take for lunch, is that controversial? Controversial. Well, what else is controversial about being a man today? And I think most men would say the answer to that's a lot. Mm-hmm. My guest is Chase Replogle, and he has uh, offered five books, five copies of his books that we can give out to uh, five lucky people. Uh, and think about Father's Day, because uh, that's coming up on Sunday, or the 19th, the 19th. So if you want to get in on the drawing, text the word book to 877 933 2484. Again, text the word book to 877-933-2484. We'll get you in on the drawing. We'll take a break. When we come back, uh, Chase, I want to talk about the instincts in, in the book. And if they're left unchecked and overindulged, could they collapse a man's life into desperation? That's what I want to address when we come back. Um, we'll be right back. the show. Chase Replogle is my guest. He's written a book called The Five Masculine Instincts, A Guide to Becoming a Better Man. If you would like to get in on the drawing, text the word book to 877-933-2484. We have five copies. So in the book, uh, Chase, you talk about 
that that your instincts are not necessarily sinful, but if they're left unchecked and overindulged, they have the tendency to collapse a man's life into desperation and defeat. Can you explain that? Yeah, maybe a good way to explain that is we were talking before the break a little bit about Moses and his instinct of ambition. And we mm-hmm. were talking about how that uh, at times he finds himself rising to that, that instinct for ambition at other times struggling with it. it. Towards the end of Moses' story, uh, it's one of the scenes after he's been leading Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. They're constantly complaining, at times almost in open rebellion against him. He's frustrated by the stalled progress that they're making. And God commands him to go out and speak to a rock and provide water for them again as they're continuing to complain and grumble. Moses goes out, and uh, certainly you'll remember the moment of disobedience when he strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. But also in that scene, Moses gathered the, the, the nation of Israel together and began to chastise them, saying, you rebels. And then he says, must we produce water from this rock? So what I think you see going on with Moses and ambition is there's a good kind of ambition that God calls us to that moves us. But all of these instincts can become out of balance. Moses, because of this vision that he's measuring everything in his life against, this instinct towards that ambition, he begins to judge the people based on that fulfillment. He begins to judge himself, mistaking his own emotions for God's emotions, must we And in the end, he ends up uh, judging God. His frustrations come out in the story, even in disobedience to God. So on all of these instincts, what I try to show men is that even good things like an ambition for God, an ambition for doing great things for God, that if it goes unchecked, one of the tendencies it has is to lead towards desperation and often disobedience. Even good things in their desperation can lead to disobedience. And so with Moses' story, I recommend that practice that goes along with ambition is a practice of Sabbath. Uh, are we capable of setting down that ambition by which we strive, by which we point our whole lives? Um, Christians practice Sabbath because we're willing to check ourselves. We're willing to set things down and leave room to recognize what God is doing and what God is leading, even beyond, beyond our own ambitions. Mm-hmm. Chase, what is the difference between character and reputation? So I use the story of David to talk about reputation, and uh, it's never been easier, I think, in our world to to present a view or an image of yourself to the world. You can do it online. You can do it through your achievements and your successes. You can do it just through the, the triviality of on Sunday morning shaking hands and talking about the weather and life is always good and everything is good. And it's even easy to sort of hide things from yourself, to sweep the complicated parts of your life under the rug. Uh, David's story, in the end, for me, is a question of integrity. And I think the integrity, this character of integrity that we talk about in David's life, this is sort of the political season where I live. You're seeing the politicians putting yard signs out. We imagine integrity as a kind of uh, politician's virtue, right? We always do the right thing. I'm trustworthy. Hmm. But in David's life, integrity doesn't mean I always do what's right. That's certainly not true of David. Integrity comes from the idea of an integer, a whole number. There's nothing in my life that's divided or missing or fractional, but I'm willing to bear responsibility and be honest about even what I get wrong in life, that I'm not living out of an appearance, I'm not living out of a facade, but I'm taking responsibility for all that I am. One of the great things I think about David, David does so much wrong. Uh, Certainly, I don't think David's a model. I hope I avoid and my son avoids many of the things David does. But one of the things I've always respected is David leaves us a full confession of his life. Mm. Our politicians today can, you know, hire attorneys to cover things up and hire image consultants to help with their PR. 
But David leaves us not only the royal records of all of his failures and the prophetic indictments, but he also leaves us his psalms, his own repentance, his own brokenness and longing. David could have covered it up as easily as our leaders do, but he doesn't. He leaves us this whole image, this whole life of confession, a single whole image, integrity. And I think it's a reminder to us as men that though it's easy to live into our reputation and our public appearances, we risk so much when we do. And God is calling us instead to a life of character, a life of integrity that that allows ourselves to confess before him and with a few close, trusted people in our lives uh, the actual truth of who we are. That's a very well-constructed thought, Chase. Yeah. I, I, I like that from beginning story. to end. You did that well. I'm looking forward to hearing that a second time on the podcast tonight. Um, I want to just mention, if you just uh, got in your car and uh, started it and tuned into Faith Radio, I'm talking to Chase Replogle. He's written a book called The Five Masculine Instincts. It's a guide to becoming a better man. Here are the five instincts, sarcasm, adventure, ambition, reputation, and apathy. And this book does a really nice job of uh, explaining all of them and how it fits in uh, to the uh, becoming a better man. So, Chase, maybe in the last few minutes we have, we could talk about the importance of um, understanding the gospel and submission to Christ in learning to master these instincts. One of my favorite parts of the book is towards the end I tell a parable that Jesus has. has that's, honestly, I think it's one of the least well-known or least preached parables of Jesus. Uh, Jesus tells the parable of a landowner who had an orchard. And he went out into the orchard and found his groundskeeper working with one of the trees, a fig tree. And he realized that the fig tree was still not producing fruit. It's been three years, the parable tells us. Uh, It could be that most fig trees take three or four years to start producing. So it could be this is three years beyond that. This may be six, seven years he's been waiting for this tree to produce fruit. And uh, he says, enough, cut it down. Why should it waste up any more ground? But the caretaker says to the owner, let me spread some more manure. Let me spread, work on the roots, and let's give it one more year and see what happens. And that's the end of Jesus's parable. There's no uh, report the year later what occurs. But I think it's an image for what the work looks like of growing into Christ-likeness and how the gospel actually works. I think manhood is one of the things that if you aim directly at it, you end up getting a kind of caricature of it or you miss altogether. That's not where the real work is. The work is not to prove myself a man. The work is to recognize that God has given us this compost, this, this soil that we can work with, and that if we put our attention and give ourselves time to work that gospel into the soil of our lives, that a time will come when we will discover figs, when we will discover fruit, we will discover character on the tree. But you can't just produce that fruit. You've got to give your attention to the stewardship of the ground, the soil, the watering, the care for it, and it takes time. So what I would say to most of the men, and I don't think this is something our culture tells you very often, is that pursuit of Christ-likeness is a good thing and an important thing, but it takes time. And to really become a man, your goal is not, how do I become more of a man? Your goal is, how do I grow in Christ-likeness? And watch as you come out one day and suddenly begin to recognize some of that fruit of true manhood there on the vine, your attention having been given to the gospel and the soil of your life. Mm -hmm. Chase, do you have some masculinity cliches that drive you nuts? Well, now that I don't eat as much meat, so I know men can eat tofu as well now, too, but certainly that wasn't always the case for me. Um, I think we pay too much attention to the external things, and I think we jump too quickly to what role men should play. I think that's an important conversation within the church, but I think we should start with a conversation about how do we cultivate the kind of inner character 
that will allow us to bear those responsibilities and play those roles well. When you force a role on a man and then give him no path towards developing the character to do it well, I think it's actually a kind of curse. I think it can leave men disillusioned and frustrated at their own inabilities. So what I want to help men see is that there is a way forward. You're not stuck to the kind of cliches of culture, the dumb dads in sitcoms or Mm -hmm. the addicted dads that so often get presented to us. Um, Christ is willing to help all of us grow into a into more Christ-likeness and for men into a better manhood. So I still believe that's possible. It works just more internal than it is external. Mm-hmm. Just a couple of minutes left, Chase, but if, if you've been a man who followed maybe some of your instincts and they got disproportionate and it led you into some kind of personal or spiritual collapse, how do you dig your way out? Uh, I think you... Take time. I think you ask really hard questions about what's going on in your life and invite somebody with wisdom and patience to do that process with you. Be slow to jump to conclusions about what you've done wrong and really start to unpack why uh, and start to recognize that Christ always gives us in all of these characters. I wish we had more time. We could go through each one. But in all of these characters, there's a moment of redemption or the possibility of redemption. Samson, who we didn't talk about finds his hair growing back in that prison cell. And Moses, though he's asked not to enter the promised land, when Jesus is transfigured there in the promised land, who is it that's with him? Elijah and Moses, who Mm -hmm. makes it in that heavenly body. Even David, for all of his sins and failures, is redeemed and restored. So if you have fallen, well, count yourself like all of these men in the Bible who have struggled in profound ways and find good counsel and wise, patient friends, a pastor, to walk with you into discovering that grace and that mercy and mercy and that better way that Christ offers, because it was possible in all of their life. It is in yours too. Chase, I would, I, I know this guy that can get you booked back on the show. If you want to come back. Well, I would do it anytime. So okay. Well, I, I know this guy that can do that. So I'm going <laughs> to, I'm a girl actually. Well, no, I mean, I, <laughs> I will <laughs> I, arrange. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm just going to say, I will arrange to get you back on and Rosie will do all the work. So anyway, Chase, thanks for being on. It's been a delight to meet you. Oh, I'm honored. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Yeah, Pastor Chase Rapogo has been my guest. His book is The Five Masculine Instincts. We have five copies to give out. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Next up is Dr. Andy Scudinga. We're talking about why we're afraid to make changes and giving God room to do things with us. That's next. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.